0: Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books in Music, a channel of the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Dr. Naomi Andre, author of Black Opera History, Power, Engagement, a new book from the University of Illinois Press. Andre's innovative monograph is an example of a concept she calls engaged musicology. She places herself as a knowledgeable and ethical listener into the book and seeks to understand the resonances and importance of opera to today's audiences, performers, and scholars. To do this, she focuses on seven works and two continents. Andre places opera in the United States in conversation with opera in South Africa, the only country in Africa that has a continuous operatic tradition from the 19th century until the present day. Her work in South Africa began when she traveled with renowned opera singers George Shirley and Daniel Washington to that country as part of a project through the African Studies Center at her home institution of the University of Michigan. There she found a rich operatic life that included the performance of new works, such as Winnie the Opera by Bongani Breen, as well as new interpretations of canonical operas, such as Bizet's Carmen, both of which she features in Black Opera. Andre's central concern is how the history of race relations and changing gender roles in both countries impacted the development, performance, composition, and reception of opera. To do this, she provides what she terms a shadow history of opera culture to help her readers understand black operas, that is, operas by black and interracial compositional teams about black subjects and the issues around black opera singers that have been hidden due to social, political, and economic reasons rather than the quality of the work's performers. Nestled within the disciplines of musicology, ethnomusicology, African studies, and cultural theory, this truly interdisciplinary monograph points to a new way to analyze music's place in the past and the present. Welcome, Dr. Andre. I'm so happy to talk to you. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. I want to start this interview by asking um, you to tell us a little bit about your background, because I find this book to be so personal, and I think it's um, it's important to understand where you're coming from, um, and your your perspective. I am happy to talk about that because when you write a book, there's
1: usually very little information about the author besides the official where you've gone to school and things like that. So, and sometimes that doesn't give the full information. So I am happy to, uh, say a little bit about how I came to write this book that blends so many things together. My training was in a liberal arts environment, and I was a music major in um, college. Kind of an unusual thing that um, I knew I wanted to study music, even though I knew I didn't want to perform on the stage. I love singing in choirs and churches. I sing very... um, unprofessionally (laughs) just as an amateur but and i love music and i uh, love going to concerts but i knew i wanted to be somebody who thought about and wrote about music this was um, a great training i received in undergrad where i did my undergraduate work at barnard college which had the um, all the advantages of the columbia music major and um so I had that background. I also started, like most people who are music majors, as a performing person. So I took piano lessons. I sang. My mother was actually the um, trained opera singer, though she didn't graduate from Juilliard. She went to Juilliard for a few years. And by the time I came around, she was singing in churches. And so I grew up hearing Um, A coloratura soprano sing lullabies to me (laughs) when I was younger and singing. She was singing in lots of churches as special music. So I grew up with this operatic sound in my head, even though she was singing Handel and Bach and Mendelssohn and some more contemporary um, religious music. I then, um, so I'm jumping around a little bit, but I grew up with music in my ear and with a beautiful operatically trained voice. I played the piano. I knew I wanted to study music in college and do some performing, but very informally. And then when I was in college and was had access to learning all this great information about the composers and musical context and theory and asking questions about how music had meaning in its time, who supported it, who were the patrons, who listened to it, who was in the audience, I thought, oh, I, I want to continue doing this. And there were a couple of people who um, went into graduate school after, uh, who were ahead of me in college. And I thought, oh, maybe I can go to graduate school in musicology. I was pretty much a first-generation college person, so I didn't really understand what that meant, but I knew I loved studying music. Once I got into graduate school and was studying at a time where what we call positivistic musicology, where there's just a lot of facts and historical data and very important things making critical editions, and there was an emphasis on medieval and Renaissance music that um, looking at music of the present wasn't as fully explored when I was in graduate school in the ni- early 90s. And so I, um, I loved what I was learning, but I had more questions. I was very fortunate to um, be hired at the University of Michigan in the musicology program um, when I was just finishing my dissertation and that was my first time in a school of music. And it was exciting because they're the people who had the future of the tradition in their hands. I got to help train them. That was great. I also made connections with the liberal arts college, the literature sciences and arts college LSNA a um, on the University of Michigan campus. And I was particularly interested in the women's studies program because my work in on my dissertation on Verdi's operas and women, and then what became my first book looking at gender in the Primo ottocento stage. I wanted to get more of sort of a theoretical background and continue my training in what was happening in feminist studies. And so that was a good thing to connect with the people who were asking sort of the big liberal arts types, humanities questions I was used to. Once I started doing that, I realized there's this whole other set of questions I have, not just around gender, but also more broadly around culture and particularly around race and ethnicity. And so then I thought, oh, I need to get connected with the African and African American Studies program. And so I did. And actually, my um, current budgeted position is in the residential college, which is a liberal arts in the liberal arts college. The where music studies happens and a lot of the arts and in African-African-American studies. So my appointment shifted from the School of Music into the liberal arts environment where I could really focus for the past 15 years on being on committees, reading promotion Um, cases, graduate student, um, projects, undergraduate projects, really learning what was happening in the university outside of a music department in these interdisciplinary fields. So that's been a big part of what I bring to my study as a musicologist, I frequently teach non-music majors. And so I'm always asking questions in the classroom about how this is relevant to them as amateur performers, as people in the audience, as potential members of boards of directors of artistic organizations. Uh,
0: Well, that certainly helps explain um, why this book, I think, is not... um, in the best possible way, not a typical historical musicological text. It's very scholarly, but it doesn't, um, you don't use the same kind of language. And I think your, um, approach to the works that you study is definitely, it's so clearly informed by, um, a lot of perspectives that you don't often see in, um, Uh, musicology text. And I think that makes this book really exciting. Um, And one of the things that you talk about pretty early on and then use as um, uh, a theme throughout the book is this concept of engaged musicology. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what that is and um, how that viewpoint affected the ways that you um, approached the individual works that you discuss in the book. Well, I appreciate and I'm very honored to hear that it doesn't
1: read like a typical textbook or musicology book that's only about trying to use musicology jargon. And in that world, those books are helpful and important for the discipline. But I was trying to do something different, and I'm glad that came through. Of course, I'm nervous about how well it's worked. And so it's great to get some positive um, feedback on that. I wrote this book, not because I was an assistant professor trying to get tenure, I'd already done that. And yes, I'm still in the promotion world, the pipeline, and I'm going up for full professor um, actually this year. So this book was important in that world. But I had gotten to the point where I said, I want to ask my own questions and answer them in my own way. Because the types of things I'm finding, I think about in opera, that I talk to my friends about, those who know a lot about opera, those who are fans but are not scholars, and just my regular friends when we're talking about what we do, I found that I wanted to talk to them in a language that showed what I was listening for and listening to in opera. And that I hadn't seen in print before. People were not taking an approach that said, this is what it's like for me with my background in music, whether it's a lot or little, sitting in the audience watching productions today. So that's the real basis behind this idea of an engaged musicological approach. I wasn't trying to coin new ideas, but I had to call it something because it was doing musicology in a very different way than I had seen as somebody who is in the discipline. I know that there's an active um, group or set of ideas in musicology, thinking that we need to get our work out to the broader public. And particularly for people who have PhDs in musicology, who are working in artistic organizations or foundations or recording places, to have a way to explain what musicologists do and those findings to the general public. And that's called public musicology. And it came, and I talk about it in the book. And it's something that happened in the early 2000 teens. And I think it's important, but I didn't feel what I was doing hooked into that that felt public musicology felt like it was taking musicology knowledge and disseminating it more broadly to the public who didn't know. My feeling was to try to ask new questions in musicology, not taking what was already known, but asking questions of, that hadn't been asked. Who's sitting in the audience and how does your race and gender and educational background and where you're from on the planet globally, how do all of these things come together as you're watching a production, whether it's a production of The Marriage of Figaro at the Metropolitan Opera in New York in the house, whether it's a production with the live in um, HD, the high definition Mets with the Met at the movies, as I like to call it, in um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, or whether you're sitting in Cape Town, South Africa, at the movie theater, watching <laughs> this um, Mozart's um, Marriage of Figaro, or yeah, Marriage of Figaro. I'm also interested in what happens when Cape Town does The Marriage of Figaro or the Baxter Theater um, that's connected with the University of Cape Town, where they set the opera in Stellenbosch, a wine vineyard nearby that has been um, a particularly wealthy area through apartheid and after. And when the politics of the court go into the politics of the vineyard and the masters and the servants, and how does this work? That was a production I got to see in um, in rehearsal at the University of Cape Town when I was first there in 2010. So this idea of an engaged musicology is trying to bring together three basic ideas. One... Let's think about the people and their backgrounds and cultural identities as fluid as those are in the past and how we think of them in the present. Let's think about the people who write the work. The composer, in the case of opera, the librettist. Let's think about the people embodying and interpreting the work on stage. What happens when we have a South African black Susanna and a, an Afrikaans um, count? Is what are the racial dynamics that feed into this? Our backgrounds today with the social political climate means we are going to see that we are not going to be colorblind, even though the issues of Susanna being black and the Count being white aren't necessarily um, a part of the, the plot. There's sort of, it adds a new dimension. And then the third part, not just who wrote the work, who's embodying the work on stage, but the third part is who's in the audience interpreting it. And I found that as an African-American person who was, you know, young, I'm getting older now, but when I was in college and 40s, and I've just turned 50, I, um, I'm not one of the typical audience members of most opera companies, and so I was interested in how my vantage points were aligned and also maybe a little different from other people's vantage points, and noticing race was something that I wanted to talk about. I think we all do notice these things, but I think some people might feel, oh, I'm not going to talk about that, or I'm just not going to consider that so much.
0: You bring up the um, the experience of watching operas in various different places and, you know, seeing different kinds of productions. And I think that's really powerful, uh, a powerful way to interpret and think about opera. And I was curious, however, the group of works that you decide to focus on and for, for people listening who haven't read the book mo- uh, most chapters are focused on one particular work and it's a very eclectic group um, and I was wondering uh, and I'm just going to read it, uh, say what they are so people know but um, the first one was from The Diary of Sally Hemings by Balcom which is a sort of monodrama it's only for one singer and piano, Porgy and Best by Girl. So much older, very famous work, along with Carmen and three different reinterpretations of Carmen, Carmen Jones, Carmen, a hip opera. And then you'll have to help me with the the pronunciation of the South African version. You sure. Ooh, Carmen Kylie. Sure. And then finally, uh, Winnie the Opera, which is a very recent work um, by a black South African composer named Bogani Breen. How did you come to decide on this really interesting collection of contemporary <laughs> works, um, incredibly famous older works, reinterpretations? I mean, it's a really interesting uh, collection of, of, um, of pieces to discuss. Oh, thank
1: you for saying that. They're um, they're an interesting collection. They're ecle- definitely eclectic, and some people might say, "Wait, what? How do? You, why are you doing this?" To be honest, I was trying very hard to keep the Af- South African works and the African American works separate. I was thinking that I could talk about the West, which actually includes the African American. Um, works from the United States as well as the European work. So from the diary of Sally Hemings by Bolcom, Porgy and Bess and, um, Carmen by Bizet, and I could keep those and because they belong to this Western opera tradition. And then I would publish separately about the South African tradition, because I didn't want to try to equate the different struggles, um, apartheid, slavery, Jim Crow, um, colonization and apartheid, like there are different struggles that happen. And yet As I was working on these two things independently, I found that the conversations became richer and more interesting when I pulled them together. So I try to be careful in the book to say I am not saying that what happens in the U.S. is the same as what happened in South Africa. I'm trying to say that here are two systems of white supremacy where Interestingly enough, opera was something that was segregated and wasn't the Black people in both on both sides of the Atlantic in the U.S. and in South Africa were not allowed to go through the training, were not in the pipeline, and opera houses did not let Black people on stage. And then they did. And then sort of the big thing that's sort of what I was very interested to find out is that in recent years, since 1994 and the dismantling of apartheid in South Africa, and then since I've gone back to 1986 with Anthony Davis's X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X opera. But as I'm doing more research, I realize that this extends... Um, That tradition of Black opera by a shadow tradition of Black opera in the U.S. has been going on much longer, but it seems that the Tone of operas in the United States by Black composers or interracial teams working on Black subjects has taken a turn in the past 40 years. And particularly, there's an acceleration, I would say, how we're getting more operas that are about Black stories that are changing the narrative from the minstrel past. With minstrelsy, that's an American tradition going back to the 1820s and 1830s, where you have a lot of negative. Stereotypes: the Jezebel, the Mammy, the Buck, the Sambo, the Urban Coon, a bunch of them that basically play into these very negative stereotypes about who Black people were. They were never true, but sadly, when you've got people, particularly populations that don't have a lot of African Americans, and they are so non-Black populations, when they see these minstrel stereotypes, they start to seem to make sense. And they permeate. There's lots of research that talks about how they've permeated our culture. So I was interested here in the United States that with a strong, you know, we came up with minstrelsy. It was a practice that happened regularly through the 1950s and then their vestiges still today how the opera stage has turned <laughs> and become a different space. So we're getting operas now like Anthony Davis's operas, his opera on Malcolm X and the Civil Rights Movement. He has another opera from 1997 called Amistad on um, the slave ship in the 1830s that docked um, that was taken over by the Mende slaves ended up on the coast of Long Island and then that case went up to the Supreme Court um, With by John Quincy Adams wondering is this a are they slaves are they free what's the situation Um, Anthony Davis was writing about this and his opera came out right at the same time of Steven Spielberg's opera or excuse me film on the same um, title. So, um, and then we have more. Anthony Davis is an African American composer who writes also on non-African American themes. We've got um, the interracial collaboration between Richard Daniel Poor and Toni Morrison, who wrote the libretto to Margaret Garner, and uh, Morrison novel Beloved, which won the Pulitzer Prize in the mid-80s, is based on the historical character, but it's a meditation on that story. Um, the Seth is the Margaret Garner character, and so she collaborated with Daniel Poor and they wrote an opera called Margaret Garner. So here's an opera about slavery, and we've got the middle passage with Amistad. We also have other operas such as um, Daniel Sonnenberg. I just saw his opera, The Summer King, in May at the Michigan Opera Theater. It's an opera from a couple of years ago. It was performed in Pittsburgh last year. And this is another big performance it had in Detroit. And The Summer King is about Josh Gibson, who played in the National Negro Leagues. He was called the Black Babe Ruth. He was a power hitter and catcher. And it was thought that he was going to be the one to integrate baseball rather than Jackie Robinson so he becomes this sort of figure that we don't think a whole lot about today but he's an important part of sort of black history and integration So there are so many operas that are coming out now. We've got We Shall Not Be Moved, which is an opera I just was very fortuitously able to see that was performed in um, the Apollo Theater in Harlem. I happened to be going to New York just this past fall of 2017. And it's an opera that um, Daniel Bernard Romaine is the composer with the libretto by Mark um, Bamuthi Joseph. It was choreographed and directed by Bill T. Jones. And it's about the, um, it was premiered and developed by Opera Philadelphia. And it was about the move, um, the... The bombing, the move bombing. (laughs) Yes, sorry. Yes, thank you. The move bombing in 1985 in Philadelphia. And bringing that story to light and making it something that we know. Now, a really exciting thing about that opera, and I hope it gets performed in other places, is that it's not just a traditional opera with traditional opera singing, which it does have characters. There's a Latina police officer who is an opera singer, but there are also spoken word and hip hop people who are bringing their language and voice and sound to the opera. So it's really taking what opera is and stretching it and expanding it, yet it came out of an opera company and was billed as an opera. So I'm very happy to call works operas that the creators think of as operas.
0: Um, So obviously you have this um, sort of encyclopedic knowledge of these um, operas that show more contemporary operas that really um, are exploring these issues, particularly of race, something that not many operas Overtly explored, uh, certainly prior to Carmen, and and I think, um, and and so you bring some really interesting ideas about how do we um, uh, how do we deal with operas that talk about issues of race and sexuality particularly and issues of consent and um, issues uh, you talk about this um, Mozart seraglio for instance which has Turkish and Muslim characters that are approached in ways that we just are not that comfortable with anymore they might uh, they uh, our ideas have changed since maybe the 18th or 19th century when these works are written or maybe we're really at the custom right now, for instance, with issues of consent about trying to figure out a new paradigm for understanding consent. And part of the book is sort of thinking about how do we approach these older works that make us uncomfortable now? How do we stage them ethically and responsibly? And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your feelings about this and and your involvement in this issue.
1: This is precisely part of what I wanted to do in an engaged musicology. I wanted to bring who I am and the time I'm living in. So what is encoded in how I see theater and life and look at opera as a per- a, an art form that is both an older form, especially when you're talking about the 17th, 18th, and 19th century repertory being performed, but unlike a picture on the wall, a visual artwork or a novel where you see it today, but it's all how the artist originally intended it us to see it, opera and dance and theater... Uh, get to be re-embodied and get to be very different, different types of bodies, different theaters and places and spaces where these things are interpreted. So as I... Have um, And I'm not the only one to begin to look at operas such as Don Giovanni, which I use as an example of a canonic work that many opera people have seen many times. And it's an amazing work. There's wonderful things in it. And yet... The opening scenes where Donna Anna and Don Giovanni are in a tussle and how to present that as consent or not consent is complicated in today's climate. It's very hard as a teacher, a professor at a university, where these issues of what consent what consent means for my students in the classroom, I need to realize that I can have students in there who've been in complicated situations besides the issues of What are triggering different students and rape is a huge one. It's also something to talk about of what we look at at the past just because it's opera doesn't mean that it gets a free pass and how we think about it and how we don't engage it. I think these works become much more powerful when we do engage them. And there's not one answer to say the case for the *Die Entführung aus dem Serail*—the abduction from the Serail by Mozart—was a particularly complicated one, because, as I relate in the um, in the chapter and the conclusion. This is one where I was on the board of a, an organization, and I would tell my friends to come and be involved, and yet I felt that something should be said about the content and what it meant in today's climate, in a post 9 climate. And this was being performed in Michigan, where we have a very large Middle Eastern population. I wouldn't want a minstrel show to be performed without anybody saying, these. this is the reason why we're doing this and this is for educational or the aesthetic gorgeousness of the music or it helps us understand this composer from an earlier stage before later collaborations. I would want some sort of commentary and I was frustrated as I write about that um, there... It, There's the complicated situation for production companies and for artistic organizations to not alienate their audiences, but to also be responsible to things that are becoming newer thoughts. This Mozart's opera has been the same since it was first written in the 1780s, but we see it differently now given the experiences and the climate of the world that we have. So these are things that I wanted to bring up, and I had never really read about this in a scholarly place in coming out of musicology. You read it in other disciplines, you see sort of newspaper or New Yorker or NPR extended segments on this. But I wanted my people in musicology, I wanted the people who know the details about opera the best, usually not only, but especially musicologists. And I wanted to say, here are some thoughts I'm experiencing. I bet you're having a similar situation when you see these performances today too. And if you haven't thought of these issues, this is what I'm thinking about. What do you think about them? So he's trying to bring this stance. I don't want to go too far and say it's an activist stance of making us all conscious of things in opera that we hadn't been aware of because that's the thing to do. But it is an element of saying, I want us to look at these works and how they have meaning and how they affect us. These are powerful, beautiful, wonderful works. And let's think about them. They deserve that.
0: As I read your book um, when you were dealing- Dealing with these issues. I kept thinking of something I heard Rhiannon Giddens say at a concert once. Of course, she's the great African American um, singer who's classically trained but now works mostly in um, sort of Americana kind of. uh, folk genres and um, yeah she's she said, great <laughs> oh I love her she said you know we need to keep the good stuff and remember the bad stuff and, and she said this right before she sang a song that was uh, done in minstrel shows in the 19th mm-hmm. century and I keep I thought of that a lot as I was reading these sections of the book about how difficult it is it's easy to say that and how difficult it is to put that into <laughs> practice um, uh, and I think um, you bring up issues that I think are really important. Certainly Don Giovanni is something I teach as well and really struggle with that mm-hmm. opera. Um, uh, so I think that, um, starting that discussion within musicology with this with this book is really uh, one of the important interventions that, that it makes. Um, I thought that uh, I would also want to ask you some specific questions about some of the specific works you talked about, um, and maybe we can start with Carmen. Um, I don't know that there's another opera that is reimagined <laughs> so often as Carmen is. You know, there's so many different versions of it. You talk about three, but there are many others. I wonder if you let, could talk to us a little bit about how this the South African production or the South African reimagining is different uh, from from not only the two that you talk about that are out of uh, the American tradition, Carmen Jones, which is a musical, and Carmen Hip Hopera, which is something that MTV did relatively recently um, with Beyonce. Actually, you know how how is this one special?
1: It, I agree with you that there's something about Carmen and maybe because she is a character who is sort of the big, you know, capital other who is, comes out of the Roma or as had been said it's sort of the gypsy population and it was I want I spent time on the novella by Merame and the opera because I wanted to show that she has always been an outsider and particularly with the French looking at the Spanish and then with this migrant population with the Roma. So, and then when I talk about her in these African-American settings, the um, a wonderful thing, and I'm so glad to have this opportunity to mention it, there's currently, right now, a production of Carmen Jones, the a 1943 um, Oscar Hammerstein musical on Broadway now. And I actually focus more on the 1954 Preminger film version, just because that's when I could see and my reader's. Could see it's it's widely available, but I bet there's so many other interesting things to talk about with the um, the actual musical, and this is in a production that's being pared down and is um, has been getting good reviews. I hope to see it. The, uh, and then there's the 2001 MTV um, Carmen Hip Hopper, as you mentioned it, with Beyonce Knowles of Destiny's Child. That's how she was known at that time. <laughs> and it's fun to be thinking about that work and writing about it when she is so important and such a big part of culture today. The Carmen, U Carmen Kailicha was a film I heard about. It came out in 2005 and I was fortunate to um, hear about it and early on. And I thought, what is this? I was able to get a DVD a few years later. I watched it. and I thought, what is this? And why is this? Why would South Africa want to Do a Carmen and translated into Tosa, one of their languages, and I don't do the clicks too well, but they do them beautifully, and it's so interesting to hear the singing with all these great vowels, and then everybody just beautifully doing the right kind of, you know, Tosa or there are many different types of clicks, and so I um, that piqued my interest to say, is this is this a thing? Is there an opera in South Africa that was really my entry into it? Or is this just some strange experiment and let's find out why? And I found out that this is a thing. This is actually a big thing. And it makes sense. I go into a little more detail in the book about how there had been such a choral, choral singing, choralism tradition in Black um, communities in South Africa, as well as in some white communities, but particularly there are township choirs, school choirs, police choirs, um, qu- church choirs. I mean, there are choirs for everything. People sing. And because I think so many people do it, you get people who have a lot of practice and who do it really well. And so to go from one generation, you know, the ending of apartheid or dismantling really coming in the 1990s and 1994 is a date people use a lot. And then to have this barely 10 years later, not even in 2005, to have this of an opera singing operatically was amazing and it shows that for some reason, and I go into some of these reasons, opera is becoming a space in South Africa. It has become a space where you have all black companies, integrated companies, and they're probably, not legally, probably all white companies, but there's some companies that are less integrated than others. So this Carmen does a lot of interesting things. It takes the story that we're all familiar with, and it adds things. And it takes the location is one of the first things, Kayalicha. And the opening of the film introduces you not only to the story and Bizet's music, but also what you see as you move through the camera moves through the township and then shows the railroads that sort of, you know, this is how you get into the big cities and these townships were created as part of apartheid in the 1950s. So there are times in the opera where you've got Bizet's music and you'll have some South African traditional singing happening on top of other. Each other a really interesting sort of multi vocal, many meanings happening at the same time. Sometimes there are moments where the bazay music is just quiet and then they'll add some singing or um phrases of songs um, in some not full songs but just elements of music in um, into the, the soundscape and then sometimes you get the diegetic noises of the township of Kailicha just what's happening with the cars with the, the cows with the goats and so there is such a rich visual and aural soundscape in this opera the opera treat takes the story but treats it in a way that That shows the aftermath of the violence of apartheid. One of the things that's very interesting in U Carmen Kailicha is that the Don Jose character, Carmen's tenor um, main love interest, his name is Drongi Kaya in the um, film. We find out that he's beating her and that coming out of a very violent apartheid past, this Sort of domestic abuse needs to be seen in a light that contextualizes it. It's not good that he's beating her. Absolutely not. And that we find out about it when her friends um, from her smuggling group uh, talk to her about it. But it makes this Carmen a different type of Carmen. One of the things I talk about is how this is not a Carmen that only seduces us and the people on in the story, but she's a vulnerable Carmen. She's a Carmen who gets beaten up by the police. She's a Carmen who gets beaten up by her partner, Jongi Kaya. And this is a story that doesn't conflict with the Bizet, but adds another layer, another plane of meaning. To who this character has become it's just, I feel my analysis of Ukarman Kailicha is one, there's another published um, analysis by Davis and Dovey that's referenced in the book, but I feel there are also other interpretations that will be richer from people who live in Kailicha and what they see because this the people of Kailicha, of this community are in the background of the film and a lot of the singers who perform the parts, from what I understand come from Kailicha. So I want to hear their stories too. One thing I'm hoping to open up with an engaged musicology is that we don't just have the primacy of one authorial, the only single interpretation, but that we have different interpretations that can give us a bigger, broader understanding of something.
0: That actually brings up sort of a thought experiment that I was doing with your book, and um, related to the final work that you discuss, Winnie the Opera, which is about Winnie Mandela, who's a really um, controversial figure in uh, South Africa. She had, you know, she was the wife and then ex-wife of the uh, Nelson Mandela, but and but she had some pretty horrible. Um, uh, I guess controversies in her past that are addressed in this in this um, opera. What do you think if this opera ever got the chance to be performed here in the United States? What do you think the reaction was? I mean, you talk about your own reaction to it as an African American watching it in South Africa, but how do you think that the interpretation of the opera would be different if it were done, you know, at the Met or in Michigan or something?
1: I would love to see this opera performed in the United States and in Europe and across the globe. This is an exciting opera that works dramatically, the pacing, the sound, it's incredible. So without being too much of a cheerleader on that side, I think you're absolutely right that there will be many different interpretations. One thing that I hope happens when being optimistic and saying when it is performed in other places is that there is a wide context out there. It's so easy to demonize political figures. And it's true with Winnie Mandela. She, um, and I talk about this and the opera talks about it with, um, her, going to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and being held accountable for the most likely the um, Mandela United Football Club, the um, soccer team that she was connected with, that there were some connections between that and the death of Sompi Sepi and a few other young South African um, youth who were thought to be informants with the police. That's one of the, the key things that has been controversial in, during Winnie's lifetime, and perhaps now in her legacy. The thing is that and that's probably true that she not, didn't kill them herself, but was involved in having that happened, giving the OK. That's quite possible. And she finally does apologize in the sense that she says these were times of war and it was a different place, a different um, context. But what people, I hope, also learn, and I think the opera shows us this, is that Winnie was on the ground trying to raise her two daughters um, and Nelson Mandela was in prison for twenty-seven years. He it wasn't easy in prison in Robben Island. I'm not trying to imply that, but she also was imprisoned and tortured and followed. And she was she's not given enough credit for being in the trenches and for all the incredibly strong, good things. She was trained as a sociologist, and she did a lot of outreach and programs that helped people, particularly women and children. So what I hope comes out, the the thing that opera seems to be very, very good at is presenting multiple sides of a character simultaneously. You have the music, but the music is is broken down into you have what the orchestra says you has what you have what the voice says and the meaning of the text and sometimes they're all in alignment sometimes there's a text that says something but the orchestra is telling us don't trust this or you know no this isn't good or the text might say something negative but the orchestra is trying to put it in a different light so opera just the basics of it Is allows us to see controversy in really helpful ways, I think, multiple sides. You also have the staging and the production. And so you're able to get this. I think that's why opera has been reinvigorated in recent times. We see this, and I talk about it in the book, with John Adams and with his breakthrough opera in um, 1986 or 87, Nixon in China, where he was able... Also, like winning the opera, these are controversial elder statesmen who are still living at the time. And you're able to see with Nixon, the paranoid sort of strange side of him, as well as focusing on his historic trip to China in the 70s and opening it up. Opera is able to not just give us the soundbite that says this is good or bad, but able to show us and help us feel through the music. This is complicated. There are many sides here and we're all going to resonate with things in a slightly different way.
0: Yeah. I I think that you're absolutely right. That that is one of the great strengths of opera that it can, it presents ambiguity well (laughs) and, um and certainly Winnie Mandela is a character that that cries out for that mm-hmm. um, kind of treatment. So she does. She seems like the perfect operatic <laughs> character. As frankly as did Nixon, mm-hmm. um, I think uh, uh, the two share that. Um, I, you know, this is kind of a, an odd question, perhaps to end with. And I think we do need to start wrapping up our conversation. But I was um, curious that one. Person that you mention many times in the opera, without um, in the book, without actually really going into it very much, but use as sort of a, a a a point of reference is Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. You you do mention him quite often, and I was really interested that he becomes this sort of um, you know he's clearly some kind of touchstone, and his election is kind of a touchstone for you and your thinking. And I was wondering if you could share that you know how does Barack Obama and his election? Um, play into your thinking about these issues? Because he's he's clearly on your mind um, uh, as I write the book. Oh, that is fascinating. I didn't realize I mentioned him so much.
1: And yet you've picked up on something that's absolutely true. This book really came to sort of thinking about it and writing it. And I it, it's all within his presidency. And I realized as I was writing this and finding that To my surprise, I hadn't really thought about this when I was pulling these stories together and coming up with case studies that could flesh out what I wanted to say about opera, well-known works as well as lesser-known works, but I was feeling very empowered by the fact that there was a black president and he's an interracial president. And so it was wonderful to be able to talk about from the diary of Sally Hemings. Um, And I'm sorry, I didn't have more time to talk about that work. It's a a solo opera, a monodrama, as, as you'd mentioned up front, it's a work that looks at this, our nation's founding and how race was a part of that and how that story continues to be a part of how race (laughs) is part of our story. With Obama in the White House, it didn't feel strange to say that opera could be a space of liberation, that things could happen there. He's a person who seemed to be incredibly literate, well-educated, incredibly thoughtful in his speech, and the arts were a part of his White House. And so you're right. He, I, I was feeling empowered <laughs> as an African-American woman with an African-American president and family, African-American family in the White House. There was something where I said, it's okay to write this story now. It's not... Um, it's it's not a luxury to look at some of the highest forms of art. And I also think hip hop and jazz and breakdancing, these are also high forms of art. I'm not trying to do this high-low things, but this idea that you can focus on art and talk about it and bring in things that might not normally be focused on with race. I guess because he was such an unlikely person, in the presidency, meaning that I would have never predicted in my lifetime we would get an African-American president. The idea that the opera stage is also an unlikely place to have stories about race and stories about ethnicity and gender and how these things still resonate today. So I I really appreciate your mentioning that because I am... I, I thought, yes, I I wanted to position myself as writing this story in this time. But I didn't, (laughs) didn't realize I thought I just mentioned it once. But yeah, it was a huge inspiration. I was writing several of the chapters.
0: Well, thank you so much for talking to, to me about this book and helping me understand it and, and to bring it to, to other people's attention through this interview. just want to finish with asking you, after having finished such a big work, what are you working on today? Oh, this is a great segue now because as
1: I was um, – writing this book, Hamilton became such a huge sensation. And I um, have not yet seen it. I can't afford to yet. But I have listened to it through Spotify. And there is something that feels operatic to me. And it's a musical theater piece and it's hip hop. And, you know, I've written about the Beyonce and the hip opera, um, of, you know, the Carmen, um, Carmen, a hip opera. So I was used to having hip hop and opera and then the, we shall not be moved has hip hop in it too. So that wasn't the strange thing, but I don't want to call Hamilton an opera because it, the, um, Lynn Manuel Miranda doesn't call it an opera. So I follow what the composer does, but it felt operatic in ways. And I've noticed that musical theater has felt operatic to me before, particularly like different connections with Rent and La Boheme, or the whole Madama Butterfly and the Miss Saigon M. Butterfly. That's a musical theater piece as well as a straight theater, spoken theater piece. There are the West Side Story seems to have this in-between place. And so this is the new idea. I understand opera. I've taught it. I know the repertory. I've been very fortunate to be able to see a lot of it. I have... um, I understand opera and its development. I don't have that same knowledge with musical theater. I was spending all my money on, you know, more traditional classical concerts and the opera. So my thought, and who knows what it will turn into, maybe just, I have a talk now that looks at Bohem and Rent. um, But I... I have bigger questions around genre and particularly how these two genres have meaning today, as well as what opera was doing in the past. I think maybe musical theater is doing some of that same cultural business. So we'll see where that leads. But um, those are some of the the current things I'm thinking about.
0: Well, I was lucky enough to see um, Hamilton Right. The weekend that Lynn Manuel Miranda and David Diggs and Philippa Sue left the um, production, it was their last weekend. It was. Oh my gosh. It was amazing. My husband, it was my surprise 25th anniversary present. <gasps> I told him I would stay married to him oh. for another 25 years. <laughs> yes. Because yes, of that. Yes. But, um, and you are right from hearing it, your, your, your Arl, impression of it is correct. It is very operatic in a way that, um, that i think you're right that there are some musical theater pieces um are like this and and in fact i just heard an interview with lin-manuel mirando where he said that les miserables was a huge influence on him and that was one of the but it might have been the first or one of the first musicals he saw live and how affected he was by it so which of course is also extraordinarily operatic so um yeah so I'm sure there will be something very uh, productive to think about um, Hamilton in relationship to these to the way that opera works and um, and to the sort of operatic quality it has. So I look forward to seeing what you do with that idea and thank you so much for uh, coming here and talking to me today.